While Accordi is doing it 12 times a day, we struggle to do it two times a week. I'm Rory, welcome to the Anglo-Italian pod, and as always, I am joined by... Tommy, and you can find us on Twitter at ItalianAngloPod and on Instagram at AngloItalianPod. Rory, what are we going to discuss today? This week we are talking a quiet weekend in the Premier League, an exciting weekend in Italy... Coupe de France news, we're talking a predictable week in the Champions League and we are talking the greatest comebacks and the worst comebacks in football history. Tommy, are you ready to talk some football? And it's time for the Who Am I quiz. So for any new listeners... Welcome, and also I will explain to you the rules. So I am going to pretend to be a professional footballer, like I used to do in nightclubs when I was 19, and I am going to describe (laughs) facts about my career to Tommy. He has to guess who I am. So I'm going to tell him the club I spent the shortest amount of time at, how many international caps and goals I have, and how many goals in total in my career. Then finally... Three players that I played with throughout my career. And Rory, they are in chronological order. They are definitely, definitely, definitely. Okay. (laughs) Definitely in chronological order. I just need to move them around in my head. That's fine. They're in chronological order. Right. All right. Notes app is open. I'm ready to take notes. Let's go. Let's go. the, the, The club is Krasnodar. So the club he spent the shortest amount of time at is Krasnodar. Incidentally, the shirt I got in my first secret shirts purchase. Mm, so nice. Krasnodar, I believe, Polish team. I believe. Okay, fine. Don't say anything. He has 75 caps for his country, scoring 11 goals. All right, 75 and 11. He has 125 total career goals. Mm, this is a confusing one. 11 goals for his national team, but 120 is not a bad record. And then the notable players you've played with, Rory? Oh, let's say I've. I've <laughs> played with <laughs> Igor Akinfev. Okay. Axel Witzel. All right. And Olivier Giroud. Woo! All right. So, all right, when I think of Akin Fev, he's the goalkeeper for Shakhtar Donetsk, he better be. So when I think of Akin, Akin Fev, I think of Shakhtar Donetsk and the Russian national team. When I think of Witzel, I think of Borussia Dortmund, and then he went to Chinese team for, wait, where was he before? Right now he's at Borussia Dortmund. But before, was he already at Borussia Dortmund? Oh my God, I'm confused. I would have to think about that. And when I think of Giroud, well, Giroud, of course, Chelsea, Arsenal. I believe he was at Marseille before going to Arsenal. Hmm, I would have to give it a thought. Krasnodar, well, it's. I, I'm assuming it was at the end of his career. Or maybe he's a Polish player who start. Oh. Oh, I might have, I might be onto something. No, I don't think I am. Um, okay, 
75 <laughs> caps. <laughs> it's a good job you get three questions. So, listeners, at the end, Tommy yeah. is going to have three questions to ask me to ha- aid him on this quest, right? Yeah. So, right now, we're going to jump on our blimp for our Euro review, and you can be sure about the fact that I'll be taking a look at my notes throughout because I am quite confused at the moment. Rory, is the blimp ready? It is inflated. Let's go. And it is blimp time. We are above Europe and we have been struggling to stay awake, I think, through this week's Champions League action. It's not been the most exciting week. Despite us talking about comebacks last week, unfortunately, there weren't any in this round of fixtures, but there were still some talking points. Tommy, how does Europe look from up here? I don't know, man. A little bit unexciting, as you were saying. Um, Not like, of course, we had our weekly topic about incredible comebacks. The only one that I could see coming was the Atalanta one. While uh, And the Atletico one, I was very, very curious, but I wasn't I, I didn't have the certainty that, you know, they could even score one goal. Atalanta, I had actually more hope than I did for Atletico Madrid. And I think that they were in the tie for a good 35 minutes until that pass trying to build from the back. Shall we start from this game, from this fixture in Madrid? Let's do it. Yeah, so um, as like like you, Tommy, I, I think I said it on last week's pod, I said... Uh, Atlanta are going to turn this around. I think they were massively underwhelming in both legs. <laughs> I think I kind of had been telling my friends and everyone I could to watch Atalanta, you know, they're going to be great. They're going to be great. And they always seem to just disappoint on the big stage. And right. Why was Galini not playing? Let's just start at the obvious. So this is actually something that I looked up earlier because I'm very confused. I feel like I haven't been keeping up with Golini or Consigli starting in goal. And, uh, Turns out that Atalanta might be the only team in the world that has a goalkeeper only for the Champions League. PSG did the same thing with Buffon when there was the Areola Buffon, you know, uh, dispute who to whom he was starting. But I mean, Buffon he he cost them the Champions League in the end. Mm-hmm. But he was definitely no Consigli. I mean, Consigli is a good goalkeeper, but I feel like. To play on a Champions League night against Real Madrid, you kind of want to have regular 90-minute intervals in your blood. Not just go there and just hope that the excitement is going to make you play a good game. I just I don't understand why Golini is a very good goalkeeper and I think Atalanta should always start Golini and that's it. Well, this is it. I just I think you've just said it, but yeah, like the lack of regular action, getting thrown in like once a week to a game, and you're right, away to Real Madrid means that you are going to be a little bit rusty, just not quite on your game, and that's what we saw from Sportiello. That pass was so I don't Sorry, even know. It's just lazy. I, I said Consiglia a few times earlier, but of course I was meaning Sportiello. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, don't worry. Um, but the, the paths would just seem really lazy and no concentration. Just a typical kind of, yeah, not quite match fit. And that's the last thing you want to do. Benzema gets put through on goal and then all of a sudden it's 2-0 on aggregate and Atalanta look doomed. It then went from bad to worse, really. Um, but before we get there, can anyone... Right, I didn't pick it up the first time, but then I got a message that highlighted it. When the ref blew the whistle for the second half, for the half time, was absolutely disgraceful. 
I did not catch that. What happened? So the I believe it was Muriel who had the ball at his feet through one goal. Um, there was only one Real Madrid defender kind of level with him, but a way off. He just needed to take his first touch and he was through on goal for a one-on-one. And the ref just blew the whistle. Like the second it hit 45 minutes, it was like the second it hit 45. He started blowing the whistle before it turned 45, right? And it just seemed to me like a really horrific timing for a half-time whistle. That, look, Atalanta didn't play well, but if that chance goes in before half-time, that changes the game completely. Atalanta have got an away goal. They're kind of, the heads are up. Real are worried. It just seemed like a really, really dodgy refereeing decision for me. I didn't catch that at all, but it's interesting that you bring it up. Also because I think that in the first half, as I was saying, until that Sportiello mistake, I think that Atalanta were quite in the game. They weren't the Atalanta that we're used to seeing weekend in, weekend out. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it felt like they were in the tie. That first goal by Benzema, man, the control by Modric. I know it's a mistake from the goalkeeper, but that is world class. It was kind that of is a, a great bullet. first touch. Is it? Yeah, it, it was kind of a bullet coming his way. He controls it perfectly through ball to Benzema, and then Ramos made it two centuries of goals for Real Madrid from the penalty spot. That guy is on a mission. I don't know if I mentioned it on Monday, but that guy is intending to be the only player in history to have played six World Cups. Wow. Whoa, that's yeah. huge. But while we're talking about records, we need to also talk about Benzema, who became the fifth player, only the fifth player, to score 70 goals in the Champions League, 58 of which came for Real Madrid and 12 for Lyon. Look, the whole week people have been talking about how underrated he is to the point that I think he's now rated. But we still have to say that record is outstanding and only in 107 matches, I believe. So Champions League killer. And yeah, just I'm I'm starting to slowly respect or at least appreciate Benzema now. Wow, it's taking a long time. I yeah, don't know, it's I taking think, a while. I think just because of that all that controversy that happened with Valbuena, people started... Mm-hmm looking down on him but man you cannot you, you cannot ignore like the the skill that he's got and no of course not but it's number. also the fact that that event has led to him having zero international career as well which means that he doesn't quite like if he if france had him up front as well <laughs> like my god nobody would be close to them right i don't so I feel like the fact that it. he hasn't been out world cups at euros means that he is a bit more forgotten i think yeah, I don't even want to talk about it because I know it's not going to happen. Like, they're not going to call him up on the first <laughs> squad. And I think yeah. it's despicable considering the talent that he is. But now I wanted to ask you something. Of course, uh, Atalanta lost 3-1. But that free kick from Muriel, now, I will say it. It had, that play had the sort of, like, World Cup feel to it. I don't know, mm. like... It was a stunning goal from right outside the box. A very talented international who plays for Colombia, facing one of the best goalkeepers in the world, international as well. Courtois mm-hmm. plays for Belgium. And I don't know, it was just one of those... I saw it and I was like, it does feel like a Champions League goal, but it feels even more like a, a World Cup goal, just for the beauty of it. And the, I don't know, that curve and that... that I didn't really I, think of it, but now you said it, it does actually make sense. I can kind of see what you mean. Yeah, it came from nowhere and it was about, it might sound a bit harsh, but it was about the only thing Muriel did in the game. But it was yeah. a very, very, very good goal. But I wanted to talk quickly about Vinicius and 
Atalanta's defence. Okay. Now, Vinicius just ran in straight lines at them the entire game, and they just couldn't stop him. Obviously, they tried to stop him and then gave away a penalty. But throughout the game, he just kept running, kept running, kept running. And his dribbling is unbelievable. His close control, his first touch, very good technical player, obviously. His composure definitely could do with a bit of work. Again, he's a young player, so that will come. But I was just really impressed with Vinicius and how direct he was. But I think it was helped by the fact that the Atalanta defence just couldn't deal with him. Even Romero was struggling. And that guy, I was very impressed with him against Inter, but he was struggling against Vinicius uh, at the, on Tuesday. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like in, uh, in Italy, we, we praise a lot Italian defences in the Serie A, and uh, rightfully so, because I think that it's when you watch defensive football, I think Serie A is up there. It's probably the best <clears throat> defensive football you can see. But when you play the Champions League, it's a whole different game. You have to score goals. And so I think that adapting that defensive style that we have in Serie A to the Champions League is not always easy. And Atalanta are still, as much as they're an impressive team, they're still a young team, very inexperienced on the big stage. Last year, it was incredible that they got to the quarterfinals. Mm. This year, they had a, well, they had a very impressive group run with Ajax and Liverpool, and they won at Anfield. I mean, that's still huge. But then, you know, in these games, it's you have 180 minutes to not make a single mistake. And if yeah. you make one mistake, you need to, you know, adapt your squad and your lineup to overcoming that deficit. And uh, Atalanta are still very young and immature, and I think that they need a bit more time. Even experienced teams like Juventus struggle in the Champions League. <laughs> well, no, you're, you're right, exactly. And you could argue that Atalanta made probably three or four mistakes across the tie, if you know what I mean. Including, okay, we said in the first leg the red card was very soft, but that was a mistake from the defender to even kind of make that challenge, if you know what I mean. And then you've got giving away the penalty, you've got the mistake by the goalkeeper, and you can see that maybe the lack of um, the lack of experience there really cost them. Um, and also last year, they were a bit more of a surprise package than this year. And I think the bigger sides have kind of looked at them, studied them and thought, we're not falling for that again. If you know what I mean, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. it's like when a team comes up in the Premier League or in Serie A, the first season, they might boss it and end up ninth, eighth. But then the second season, people click on and they go, right, we're not losing to you again. If you know what I mean, I think it's You're kind of that. Down like, again. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> What should we review next, Rory? Where do you want to go? Well, the other game that night, the other game that night was Manchester City absolutely breezing past Borussia Mönchengladbach to nil. An absolute beauty from De Bruyne to make it six goals Ooh. this season and 16 assists. The 16 assists just looks ridiculous. And the other one was, of course, Gundogan with a beautiful slipped pass from Foden. But that's now put Gundogan on 15 goals this season and three assists. This is already his best goal-scoring season in his career by some distance. So the guy is also getting tipped for player of the year in the Premier League, which I think could be a dark horse for that one. Beyond that, Mönchengladbach are in really bad form. We're going to come on to it later in the Bundesliga preview. But they really if Atalanta disappointed in this in this knockout round, Mönchengladbach really disappointed in this knockout round. I know it's against City. They are unstoppable at the minute, but I don't think they put up as much as, as much of a challenge as they could have done. 
Yeah, I didn't watch. Uh, I didn't watch the game. I did watch the highlights. It felt like a very one-sided tie. Mm. Also, I did watch the first leg. Very one-sided. Once again, very one-sided. Still, praise to Borussia Mönchengladbach for only getting four goals scored against in 180 minutes against the, the team that plays the most offensive football in Europe, arguably. So, good job. I guess that's an Yeah, Marco Rosa is looking in trouble, but we're going to come on to it. Moving on to Wednesday night, the game we're going to look at a bit more in depth. I think there's more to talk about with Chelsea Atletico, eh? Yeah, let's just go through Bayern Lazio very quickly. Lazio were never, never, never in this tie. And uh, they are the fourth Italian team out of four to be eliminated from this So, year's- Tommy, we can talk about this. No Italian teams beyond the last round of the round of 16. What does this say? What do you think? Is it just look at the draw or? No, 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 it's not. This is a problem that has been, we've been dragging. Uh, for quite some time. It's no news. Uh, Italian teams in the last decade, they ever since Inter Milan won the Champions League. Yeah, we did win the Champions League. Last Italian team to do it in 2010. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, ever since then, uh, every Italian side has struggled to compete, but not only in the Champions League, even the Europa League. I think that it's because there was a period when there was a big gap between Serie A and all the other leagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have... There was a period ever since Inter, I think, won the Champions League. There was a period when there weren't like big names in Serie A and uh, it was kind of an unexciting league. And that's just Serie A has been picking up. People have been picking up an interest on Serie A recently more. Mm -hmm. And I think that things will change. Maybe the next edition of the Champions League will be different. But this is no news. Italian newspapers talk about it all the time. Why can't we perform in Europe? Maybe there there is something to be with our defensive football that doesn't just doesn't stick to the European football that most teams play. Mm-hmm. We were t- I, I still haven't found the stat, but the majority of teams that play with a three man defense are all in Italy. So yeah, that could be it. But yeah, Lewandowski once again, and I feel like Lewandowski at this point is kind of looking at the cup like, huh, here we meet again, buddy. Because I feel that Bayern Munich and Man City are by far the two most informed teams at this moment. And if they don't meet each other right now at the quarterfinals, hmm, that could be that could be a very interesting run, I think. I think that's the that's the final we all want, right? Uh, Bayern City is the final we want. That could be that could be really interesting. But Lewandowski very few teams retain it, right? Very few teams retain it. But I think this Bayern team could do it. We've talked about it before. Um, but also, the other goal was from the man with the best agent in football, Chupo Moting. Yeah, right. Who managed to get a goal for Bayern. His clubs include Stoke, PSG, and Bayern Munich. How he landed in, in Munich, I'm not quite sure. But he is chipping in with the goals. Um, for Lazio, Parolo got a consolation. But yeah, as you said, Lazio were never really in this tie. It's a really tough draw. Nobody expected them to go through. I think Inzaghi would admit that they were heavily not the favourites. I think they might have liked to do a bit better, but what can you do against this Bayern team, really? But the big game, which I find was I thought was really interesting, was Chelsea 2, Atletico Madrid nil. Is Simeone's football dead in Europe? Is it done? 
No, it's not done. I think that Cholismo is going to live on and uh, Atletico are going to come back again. I, they've been so successful for so many years in the Champions League that I don't think that it can die like that from one day to the next. But to Chelsea, Chelsea is the first team to beat Simeone's Atletico in a two-legged UCL tie with a team not featuring Cristiano Ronaldo. Wow, stat. I like that. Yeah, man, from ESPN. Thank you very much, boys. And Tuchel is the manager with the best ever start at Chelsea. Better than Sarri. He's really onto something. Zero defeats so far. Like At the time, I need to kind of step back on another one of my predictions. Um, At the time, I thought it was an underwhelming appointment. I thought... I don't know if it's going to be a good fit. I'm not really sure what his style is. I'm not really sure what his aim is. But my God, he has made Chelsea ruthless. I think it's 13 clean sheets for them now. Um, Edouard Mendy is looking incredible. He's finally, I did not know why Lampard had dropped Rudiger in the first place, but Tuchel has brought him back in and he is looking commanding. And the player who I was most excited to see kind of him get a tune out of was Ziyech. Now, I loved watching him at Ajax and he had a bit of a slow start to life in the Premier League. Obviously, he was injured at the beginning of the season and he was kind of getting cameos from Lampard. But now it feels like Tuchel is starting to get a tune out of him and that could be exciting for Chelsea fans. I said at the beginning of the season when they signed him, he is an exciting player. He's a pleasure to watch and it would be nice to see him kind of hit in form. But he got the first goal and then... Emerson Palmieri with his first touch of the game to seal the tie, to make it 2-0. Atletico had zero attacking threat in this up until the 70th minute, I would say, when things started to get desperate, they started to push. But João Felix, I don't honestly don't know if he touched the ball. Like It seemed really anonymous. And what I fear with Simeone football and with anything like this, when you set up too negatively... When you go a goal down, it's impossible to like go from reverse gear to fifth gear, right? It's hard to suddenly shift. And I feel like he's maybe not got the balance quite right this year in terms of the defensive focus and the attacking focus. I'm going to say it might be because Thomas Partey left. He was very important for them. Very important. Nice. I like your take. I like your take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like the midfield glue, keeping keeping it all together. Well, this is what he's started to do for Arsenal now, is win the ball and then quick, then quick passes forward. That's what he does. He is the transition. And I feel like without him, Atletico were a bit slow transitioning from the defence to attack. So I think maybe they're missing him more than they thought he, they, thought they would. Um but Chelsea, you've got to say, what a performance. And Kante, right? People were saying Kante was done. They were saying he was out. This what? guy is one of the greatest midfielders to play in the Premier League. And he was unbelievable last night. And if you think it's just him running around and it's his fitness that gets him through, it's not. It is his reading of the game. He knows exactly where he needs to be at every moment. And he happens to have the fitness to keep it up, Right we've heard the stories that he runs to training and runs home again, right? Like this guy does not stop running. And I was just so impressed with him. He's the nicest man in football. I love seeing him do well again. I love it. Yeah. I love all the memes with him smiling on his bicycle at the French, at the France retreat. But My, another player that looked pretty lively and uh, I hadn't, I hadn't been watching many Chelsea games, but I was quite impressed last night. Timo Werner. He, he looks like he's back in the game. 
Oh, he's so frustrating to watch, though. He's so frustrating to watch because you just, I think he always, he's running and he's through on goal and he's rapid and you're like, yes, hit it. And then he just hits it as hard as he can over the bar. I think there or, is a bit of frustration. He, and he I get it. His confidence ball. is yeah. his confidence is low, right? But he it seemed a few times he chose to run on the outside rather than the inside, or just he was kind of he was doubting himself a little bit. Once he hits form, like I think next season he is going to be an animal in the Premier League. Like, yeah, that's the thing. I think he's one of those players that once he gets that goal, bam, there is mm-hmm. there will be if not not stopping him, but he will he will be back in form like we used to see him at die roten bullen. And so, Rory, right now, who do you think are the Champions League favorites? You know, guys, if you're listening for the first time, Rory and I are very good at predictions. I had predicted that Inter Milan <laughs> would win the Champions League, and Rory said that Chelsea would win the Premier League. So it's about time to say who are the favorites. Nailed it. Um, I'm still going to say City. I'm still going to say City. All right, I got Bayern. I'm backing. I'm backing, but not backing them. But I think I think they're gonna they're gonna win it. We shall see. And Rory, where should we go next? Now that the, well, how are Arsenal doing? Um, it's currently nil nil. Um, Pepe had an open goal in which he megged the defender from an angle, but the defender just managed to nick it and knock it onto the post. So he's very unlucky there. Leno has had to make one or two very good saves because our defence still can't handle long balls for some reason. Um, But we are looking nervous, let's say that. A bit too nervous for a team that are 3-1 up with three away goals, right? (laughs) We should be looking a bit more comfortable. But we will see. It's about 26 minutes in, so halfway through the first half. If we can just get one goal, the tie's over, I think. But we're looking a bit nervous. Teams at the 27th minute mark, they're all drawing nil-nil. No goals to break the deadlock yet. Where should we go, Rory? You tell me. Where do you want to go, buddy? Vamos España. Vamos España. Because last night, where we were all busy watching Champions League, Sevilla won 2-0 against Elche. And guess who scored once again? And Nazri. This is something that we're pretty good at, indicating a player that is very mm. good because he has already got 10, 12 goals, yeah. <laughs> and then they keep scoring. That guy's taking yeah. He's a, guy, check this guy out. He's top scorer in the league. You might not yeah, have heard right? of him. <laughs> he, scores, he scores his 15th goal in 27 games in La Liga. He is really onto something, and he had a beautiful, beautiful glancing header. The assist from Suzo was quite sexy. And the 2-0 was by El Muto Vasquez with a beautiful backheel nutmeg goal. You don't see many of those. He nutmegged the defender and the goalkeeper Ooh. was like, oh no, he did get it with his backheel. And uh, yeah, right now, Sevilla are fourth, plus nine points from the Europa League spot and only three points below Barcelona. So I think that it's been a strange season for for Sevilla, kind of up and mm-hmm. down. But if they get a few more wins, I think they they have secured their Champions League spot for next season. While this weekend we don't have many exciting games, there is Celta Vigo taking on Real Madrid on Saturday at 4:15 p.m. and uh, Sevilla are going to play away at Real Valladolid. The last two games that they've played against each other were both draws. While on Sunday, we have Valencia-Granada. I wanted to highlight this game because Valencia 
are the team that were supposed to be doing much better than they are, while Granada are supposed to be lower in the standings, where they're only six points apart. Valencia are sitting 12th at 30 points, Granada 8th at 36 points. So I feel like if Valencia get a win, it could be kind of a statement win. I do not think they're going to be relegated like someone was rumoring. I think that was a little abrupt maybe to bring that conversation in at that point in the season. I think they're going to stay up, but this would be an important win. And Atletico are taking on the Deportivo Alaves at 6.30 p.m. on Saturday, and they haven't lost versus Deportivo in their last seven. Knock on wood, because we are still backing Simeone and the Colchoneros. And finally, the weekend is going to wrap up with Real Sociedad Barcelona. Barcelona haven't lost a single game against Real Sociedad in their last nine. So that is quite something we shall see. Of course, Forza Atletico, that's who we are backing in La Liga. It has to be. It has to be. Now they're out of the Champions League. I'm not sure if they're still in the Copa del Rey. I assume they still are, but their focus should firmly be on no, no, La Liga. No, no. The final is set for uh, for Copa del Rey. It's going to be Barcelona against Atletico Bilbao. Oh, of course it is. Yeah, so they've, they've got no excuse. Their only focus now is La Liga. Their Just only like focus. One. Knock on wood. Egg, <laughs> exactly. Real Madrid still have the Champions League to focus on. Barcelona, of course, don't. But... Yeah, vamos colchoneros, vamos, vamos, vamos. You have to, you have to. Et allons en France, Rory. Hier soir, well, il y avait la Coupe de France. C'est pas vrai? <laughs> exactly like that, yes. In Coupe de France uh, this week, my accent is not quite as good. Um, we had a kind of dry run for the title race as PSG took on Lille at the Parc de France. And if this was a dry run, Lille should be worried because PSG ran out pretty comfortable winners, 3-0. Goals came from, well, poking again, as he loves to do, apparently, um, from a couple of yards out as the goalkeeper and the defender got very confused at the back. But it enabled Icardi to have a tap-in. That was in the ninth minute. Then things got from bad to worse as Lille gave away a penalty in the 41st minute, so just before half time. Mbappe absolutely smashed it top corner. Like he hit it so fucking hard. It was ridiculous. The keeper had no chance. And then Mbappe then added a third in the 90th minute on the break as Lille were pushing forward. It was a really beautiful goal. He kind of took the ball from over his shoulder, first touch, and just rinses the defender and then chips the keeper. But the man of the match, despite two goals, I would say is Kilo Navas. Now, there's an argument for him being the most informed keeper in Europe at the moment. And maybe people kind of disrespect him a little too much. I think after Real Madrid, he unfairly got a bit of a bad reputation. But I feel like it was more the way he was treated than his performances. I'm not sure. But... He was key again in this tie as he saved a penalty and made four or five unbelievable saves to keep PSG in the tie. It definitely wasn't comfortable for the Parisians. Lille did have their chances, but with Navas in goal, they never stood a chance. But for Lille, this could be a blessing in disguise, right? We've talked about teams who only have the league to focus on. Now Lille only have the league to focus on. 
Yeah, and let's not forget that Keylor Navas made a name for himself in a World Cup playing for his national team of Costa Rica. Mm. And they advanced in the World Cup thanks a lot to his saves. And I do believe he's one of the best goalkeepers around in Europe at the moment. And the PSG have been struggling with that position recently. They had Areola, then they had Buffon, before they had the Trap. I'm going by heart. I hope they... Sirigu right. they have for a while, right? Yeah, Sirigu was a pretty good fit, but they needed that world-class goalkeeper. And now they do have it. Wow. Now that I'm thinking about calling Bayern Munich to win... The Champions League, I forgot about PSG. PSG it and does feel like they're starting to fill gaps. And the exciting news around PSG, they are apparently making moves for Ronaldo and Messi. If right, Apparently, they are trying to figure out if they can do it. If they had Ronaldo, Messi and Neymar and Mbappe in the same team, that is like, I, I don't play FIFA, but that is like FIFA ultimate team levels i imagine of like squad building it would be interesting and if any team could afford it it's probably psg i can't think of any other teams that could even think of trying to afford it that would be unbelievable and then also sergio ramos remember his his uh his contract is expiring there were some rumors about him going to psg I think that, yeah, PSG do have the monetary power to probably snatch a few of these big names. We and then see- all they need is Holland, and they've completed football, right? That would be so boring. <laughs> yeah. the I, I'm not going to cover the league on anymore next year if this is going to happen. It would be so boring. Yeah, for every other team, just zero chance. <laughs> like As opposed to the 20%, 30% at the moment. But Lille, now... This may be the curse, but we're back. At, Lille have to do it. They have to put a bit of excitement into French football, upset the Parisians and give a bit of competition. I think the fact that they now have no other competitions to focus on could be a big, big movement here. What are the games to watch this weekend in Ligue 1 and Bundesliga, Rory? So in Ligue 1, we have a huge... Huge relegation dogfight between Lorient and Nantes. Now, I've been told by my dad to stop saying Nantes and to say Nantes. Apparently, it's Nantes. So, Lorient versus Nantes. Lorient are currently in... uh, They are currently in 17th on 28 points and Nantes are uh, in 18th on 27 points. So, they are one point apart and this could be... Huge. Last time out, um, Nantes won 2-0. Goals in the 80th and 83rd minute. Both teams are kind of starting to hit a little bit of form. Um, In their last five, Nantes have won two, drawn two, and lost one. And Lorient are unbeaten in their last three. So these are the two teams kind of putting up most of a fight to stay in the league. So it'll be interesting to see if anybody can, if one of them can kind of kick the other one down and get a bit of momentum for themselves. Beyond that, at the top of the table, it kind of this could be a huge week. This could be a huge week for Lille. Lille are playing Nîmes, who are also in the relegation zone. Side note: another great nickname from the French league. Nîmes are called the Crocodiles. <laughs> great nickname. Right. Nice, man. I, yeah, we're not big in Europe. So when I studied abroad in the US, I realized how big mascots are in America. You know, like the right, right, right. 
Well, the first one I thought of was a racist one, so I'm not going to say that. But like, <laughs> that doesn't you know, sound like America. <laughs> yeah, the Cleveland Indians, right? They made a big deal about the Washington Redskins, but for some reason, the Cleveland Indians are still there and nobody's flinching. And but that drawing no, is a dodgy drawing as well. But no, I love, I love a little... The you big know, smile animal. and I, it's a bit dodgy anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, love a, I love a little animal mascot. I think it's cool. Yeah, in terms yeah of no, the crocodiles, I was really... Yeah. I, I have a lot of time for that. But anyway, beyond their nickname, um, Lille, they are facing Lille in Lille this week. Um, so Lille, if they win, they could extend their lead to six points if Leon do them a favor. But Lille are obviously fresh from the 3-0 loss this midweek. Um, and Nîmes, if they do win, could escape the relegation zone, but I think it could just be beyond them. Last time, Lille won 1-0. But the big game this weekend in France is a title battle. So we've got a relegation battle and a title battle. We've got PSG taking on Lyon at the Parc de Prance. And last time, no, sorry, in Lyon. And last time, Lyon won 1-0 in Paris through that Cadoueri goal. And this could be, this is a huge game. Now, these games are always quite heated affairs. It's one of the traditionally biggest matches in France. Obviously, before PSG were dominant, Lyon had that team that won seven in a row, six in a row. So these are historical rivals. Um, if Lyon win, they could go level with Lille um, at the top of the table and leave PSG three points behind both. So it could be a big weekend an interesting one. I'm definitely going to be watching PSG Leon. That is on Sunday at nine o'clock. And if you're wanting to watch the relegation battle, that is on Sunday at three o'clock. I think those are the two games to keep an eye on. I love this part of the season. This part of the season is by far one of the most exciting. I think, of course, the most exciting one is at the end if there are one or more, two or more teams competing for mm. one specific spot. But this is a crucial part in every team's season. This is kind of make it or break it. You know, every point is fundamental, and we will see also in Serie A this weekend. It's going to be it's going to be very very interesting because it's it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. You know, if even losing one game, if your opponents they both like win, you lose six points pretty much. It's uh, it's well, this is it, and especially in this season, like this season that has been so unpredictable and so all over the place. It does feel like individual results do matter more at the moment or maybe it's just because we can't get out of the house and all we're doing is watching football i'm not (laughs) sure which one it is but there was no action in germany this week the lucky buggers had a week off but the big games i have chosen for you is are first we have armenia bylevelt taking on red bull leipzig now last week armenia bylevelt beat leifkusen i forgot to mention it in the monday pod i was really annoyed because another player that i mentioned doan the japanese player for them really impressed and he's another one that you definitely need to keep an eye on but they are playing in bielefeld um last time rb leipzig won 2-1 with goals from yes that guy unkunku and angelino the forgotten man at Man City, but if Armenia by if Armenia Bielefeld win, they could go five points clear of relegation. And Leipzig, of course, trying to keep up with Bayern Munich. This game is at it's tomorrow on or today, as you listen, at <laughs> half past eight. 
After that, we have Bayern Munich versus Stuttgart on Saturday at half past three. Bayern Munich trying to keep their gap ahead of RB Leipzig, I suppose. Um, Last time they beat Stuttgart... um, quite comfortably 3-1 they did come they did come from behind but they did beat them 3-1 Stuttgart last weekend beat Hoffenheim 2-0 so in a bit of form and kind of hunting for European places Stuttgart I feel like it's been a while since they've been anywhere near the European stage and they're finding themselves a little bit closer but I think we would all predict Bayern Munich to win this one Dortmund are playing Cologne all the teams at the bottom, again, have a really rough results, like really rough results. You've got Cologne fighting relegation. They're playing Dortmund. Then you've got Schalke, bottom of the table. They're playing Mönchengladbach. If they get even a point here, it looks like Marco Rose is going to be sacked. So this game could be interesting. And then we have Hertha, the other basement boys. They are playing Leverkusen. So all the teams at the bottom for the second weekend in a row are facing an uphill challenge. So any of them that get a point or a win are going to be at a big advantage. So interesting at the bottom of the league in the Bundesliga, I think. Probably worth more keeping your eye on down there than up at the top, at least for this weekend. Interesting. And finally, shall we go to Italy? Because I am ready to talk about a crazy-ass game that Torino had in hand and they want to Sassuolo to play it. And guess what? They won 3-2 with a brace by Zaza, 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 Zaza. that guy, <laughs> my that God. Guy. Oh. You know, one of my students is actually, um, is actually his cousin. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their first, That's crazy. Their, their first cousins. And um, yeah, I didn't talk about all the love that I have. You can't bring player. it up. You can't bring it up, no. can you? Not really. You can't bring it up, but... So, as you know, Zaza used to play for Sassuolo and he scored a crucial brace for Torino, who at halftime found themselves down 2-0 thanks to Berardi's 10th and 11th goal of the season. Now, the first goal was a beautiful team play. Juricic, Rory's fantasy football hero, um, worked the ball perfectly on the right, dribbled the defender, put a chipped pass in for Caputo, cushion header, Berardi is coming back to get the ball, just mashes it in with a lucky bounce in front of Sergio, who cannot keep it out. Now the second goal, Berardi smashes it again with a left foot volley from a very tight angle to send it between Sirigu's legs. The first moment I watched it, I was like, oh, Sirigu. Then I watched it again, and it's very difficult to save a shot like that. You kind of don't even expect it to come. And then Verdi, Sanabria, Zaza, perfect combination, nice goal to make it 2-1. Mandragora manages to tie the game. I think at the 80th minute, with kind of a lucky goal following a very good deflection save by Godzilli, and in the end, they make it 3-2 in extra time. A Zaza header. And here, the Torino team stormed the pitch, but the game was still going. You don't see that happen very often. They were all in Sassuolo's box, hugging each other. And the referee was like, guys, you gotta get out, get out, get out. And the Sassuolo players looked desperate. In this game, which is a super important win for Torino, there was also an incredible save by Sirigu Onobiang, 
West Ham fans, I think, will remember Obiang. Yeah. If they will remember one thing, is that that guy has got a powerful shot. And from just <laughs> six feet from Sirigu, he smashes it in. But Sirigu has the most insane reflexes and manages to keep it out with a beautiful, beautiful diving save. This weekend, in the headlines, as you probably already know, Inter Milan. You get a week off. You're getting a week off. We get a week off. Coronavirus outbreak. At first, it was only Andanovic and our second goalkeeper, Radu, former Genoa goalkeeper last season. He was set to start. I was actually kind of worried, but at the same time excited because this guy, he he did all right at Genoa. And uh, I think that for Inter, we've talked about it's time to start assessing who's going to come after Andanovic. And, you know, maybe if he had performed against a swallow, knowing that you also have this guy, and maybe for one season you can kind of alternate him with Andanovic, mm-hmm. it would be good news. Guess what? We will never know because also De Vrij and Vecino are positive. Inter Milan are waiting for the results of the other tests, but already the local... Um, Health, uh, health, whatever. Uh, how do you call it? ASL in Italian. Oh, the uh, local health authority. Yeah, exactly. They said that Inter Milan are not going to play the game, so that's postponed. And whenever you look at the table from now on, remember that Inter Milan have got one game in hand. But talking about relegation battles, just like you were talking about in the Bundesliga, woo, we've got some interesting games this weekend. The first of which is. Parma Genoa tonight on Friday at 8.45 p.m. Parma 19th with 19 points only and Genoa 14th with 28, which is a nice little booty to keep there. But at the same time, you keep want to you want to keep adding points. Parma are looking like the team more in form at the moment, having lost only one game in their last five, and it was against Inter, the best team in Italy, so it's kind of understandable. And uh, the rest was three draws and one win, the latest game that they played versus Roma. While Genoa, they won their last game on February 6th, and uh, their last five games, they've drawn three and lost two. So definitely an interesting matchup that makes for our Friday night at 8.45 p.m., And then on Saturday, Crotone-Bologna. Crotone are definitely scoring more goals since uh, the new manager's appointment, Mr. Serse Cosmi. Um, They've won 4-2 against Torino. They've lost 3-2 against Lazio at the the 85th minute. Um, They have only got one win in their last five. But it looks like more of a lively team now that Cosmi is there. And Bologna are kind of sitting in nowhere land at 31 points. But if they want to be, they cannot reach Europe. I Yeah, I, they cannot reach Europe. But I think that they need points just to secure their spot in next year's Serie A, which should come pretty easily. And then Spezia Cagliari, 15th versus 18th. Spezia haven't won since February 13th against <laughs> AC Milan. We were giving them so much props as well. This is another thing that we do, guys, in case you're listening for the first time. We bring bad luck to the teams that we back. (laughs) They've they've lost consistently. Consistently. Yeah. Yeah. They've lost the three of the last five. Why? Cagliari have won two in the same run of fixtures. 
And then on Sunday, again, talking about relegation, Torino-Sampdoria. Now, Torino are out of the relegation zone with one game in hand. They're 17th with 23 points. They have won two of their last five, and it does feel like something is changing. Ever since they sacked Giampaolo, they have lost only two out of eight games. So definitely the wheels are starting to turn. I think that they're super pumped about the win that they've just had in Sassuolo. And Sampdoria, on the other hand, are looking bad. Their last win was against Fiorentina on Valentine's Day. And Mm -hmm. they have lost three of their last five, scoring only four goals. So I think that this game is worth a watch because Torino are going to fight for points. And Sampdoria really needed to turn their luck around. And talking about the relegation zone, the team that has definitely the worst game is Benevento. They face Juventus on Sunday at 3 p.m. They are not currently in the relegation zone, but they are playing a very dangerous game. And they have won only one game in 2021. Now, in 2020, in three months, they won five games. Now, in three months, they've won only one And uh, yeah, since uh, that game that they have won against Cagliari, they've lost six and drawn five. Of course, they need points, but I don't think that this is going to be the game to make them. (laughs) And uh, as we were saying, it's a jigsaw puzzle. One of these teams wins, uh, their direct opponent loses. They They could find themselves with a good advantage. And then the other battle that we have is for European football as AC Milan take on Fiorentina on Sunday at 6 p.m. Now, AC Milan, of course, tonight we're recording. It's a Thursday. They take on Manchester United at the San Siro. But they're in a bit of an emergency because Leao couldn't play. Ibrahimovic is on the bench. Rebic is ruled out. Mandzukic as well. And so it looks like Samu Castillejo, is going to play as a striker tonight. We shall see what are they going what they're going to do against the Fiorentina, but it's safe to say that AC Milan fans are watching their back because there is a big big battle for European spots with Roma sitting 6th at 50 points, Napoli sitting 5th with 50 but one game in hand. Atalanta fourth with 52 points, Juventus third with 55 and one game in hand, and AC Milan are still second with 56. So if Juventus win their game in hand, AC Milan would become third, and Atalanta would be only four points behind them. We will see what happens. A big classic, and this is the real battle that you want to see. Sunday night, 8.45 p.m., cancel all your plans. Roma take on Napoli at the Olimpico. The last fixture, Napoli came out 4-0 winners with goals by Insigne, Fabian, Mertens, and Politano. Napoli, as I was saying, they're two points from fourth, which would mean Champions League with one game in hand, and are waiting for Atalanta or Roma to slip. Well... Here they have the opportunity to make them slip. We shall see. Napoli, they are in slightly better form than Roma. We will see how it goes. Also on Sunday, we've got Verona-Atalanta at 12.30. Verona has lost all of its European hopes, and they have lost also their last two. And then at 3 p.m., we've got Udinese-Lazio. Now, 
Lazio have got one game in hand, but even with a win, they would still be one point from the Europa League spot. And I'm going to call it, my prediction is that the Bianco Celesti are the team that is going to miss out on European football next year. It's kind of looking like that. What do you think? Yeah, I think they're maybe starting to fall a bit. I think the fact that they've only got one genuine striker is a bit of an issue for them. Like, if um, Immobile isn't in the team, then they tend to struggle. From what I've seen of that, I'm not sure how to say it, Orici, he doesn't really seem up to it. And I think this is where they are being found out. And let's finally move to the Premier League, where, Rory, there isn't much to cover for this weekend, is there? No, it's a bit of a ghost town this weekend, but thankfully the mighty Arsenal are still playing, so I will have something to watch this weekend. Um, But yeah, we only have four games playing this weekend, and they are. So they are all from different match weeks, and they are all games in hand. It took me about 15 minutes to figure out why each of these teams were playing, but it starts today as Fulham take on Leeds at Craven Cottage. Now, Fulham was showing a bit of form, but despite that, they still find themselves comfortably within the relegation battle as they are two points adrift of Newcastle, um, who are 17th just outside the relegation zone. So we have Fulham taking on Leeds. As always with Leeds, this will be a very entertaining game. But I think Fulham might fancy something here. Leeds have been a bit out of form. Um, they've only won one of their last six Whereas Fulham are starting, like I said, starting to put a bit of form together. So I think maybe Fulham could get at least a draw here. Last time out, it was a ridiculous 4-3 game. uh, Leeds were 4-1 up and Fulham managed to pull it back to 4-3, but couldn't quite get the equaliser. So I think this will be a really interesting game. And yeah, I'm, I'm back in Fulham to get something here. I think maybe upset a little bit and make the relegation fight a bit more interesting. But talking of relegation fights, we have another dogfight, not only in France, but also in England, as we have Brighton taking on Newcastle. Now, this is a team that plays lovely, beautiful, attacking football that can't score against a team who plays boring, aimless, no-goals football, And I think this is how it's going to play out. Newcastle only seem to score from set pieces. They cannot score from open play. And especially since Callum Wilson has been injured, as Callum Wilson will do, Newcastle, the goals have really dried up. For Brighton, it's going to be the same old story. Can they they turn XG into G, right? This is the main battle that they face. I'm going to say that they can. Last time out... Brighton won 3-0 at St. James's Park. Two goals from Neil Mopai and one from Aaron Connolly, the young Irish prospect. Brighton could go four points of Newcastle if they win this and six points clear of the relegation zone. But if Newcastle win it, they could go two points above Brighton and five above the relegation zone. So this is a huge game for whoever wins this. I'm hoping it's not a draw. I think one of the teams needs to take advantage, right? They need to take advantage. For Newcastle fans, I just despair for them. I really do. Because I remember, you know, the early 2000s, late 90s, they were amazing. They were regulars in Europe. I know it's a long time ago now. But for their fans, it must feel like a millennium ago. Like, they are now 
slowly turning into like a yo-yo team. Like they'll do a year in the championship, come straight back up when they walk it and then just fight relegation for years. And then they'll eventually go down. Then they'll come up again and just rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. So I feel like this will never end until Mike Ashley leaves. There's no sign of him leaving. So I'm sorry, Newcastle fans. This is a grim couple of minutes, but oh God, I can't see you getting anything here this weekend. But the big headline is Tom Wayne versus Rory Criscuolo, a.k.a. The Hammers versus the Gunners. Wow, it's a violent matchup. The Hammers versus the Gunners. Yeah. And to make it even even worse, Crew Alexandra are playing Tottenham's... uh, Playing Tottenham, oh my God, are playing Tom's lower league team, Northampton, as well. So in the same weekend... We've got Crew versus Northampton and West Ham versus Arsenal. We've agreed that the group chat will be quiet this weekend and I'm not going to throw any of his patio furniture in his garden. That is the agreement we've come to. Uh, But yes, we have Arsenal versus... So, Brighton versus Newcastle is on Saturday at 9 o'clock. But before that, on Saturday at 4 o'clock, as Tommy said, we have West Ham versus Arsenal. Our last time out, Arsenal won 2-1. Goals from Lacazette and Nketiah with Antonio scoring from West Ham. And... As is often the way, West Ham usually play really well against us and usually deserve something, but somehow we win. I will quite happily take that this weekend, I'll be honest. I'm definitely more confident about Crew versus Northampton than I am about Arsenal versus West Ham. Um, we shall see how it goes. Arsenal, obviously, fresh off the back of a win over Tottenham and hopefully a win against Olympiacos. We still don't know. You guys do. And West Ham... They've now won three of their last five, and they're still kind of putting up a good fight for that European place. So it will be interesting to see how this game goes. A London derby is always worth watching, always a good game. West Ham, we know, are playing great football this year, really good team. Arsenal, I hope, we hope, I hope, are starting to put a bit of form together. So I think this will be an interesting game, potentially like the highest quality game of the weekend, maybe. I would say. Yeah, because, because the Spurs are playing the last one. Boo, no quality. Yeah. <laughs> then on Sunday, we have Aston Villa taking on Tottenham Hotspur at half past eight. Spurs had won their last three until they met the mighty Arsenal. So they were in good form. Um, whereas I, Aston Villa... I just wanted to say one thing. Max Hager, our... Spurs mm. fan friend from Minneapolis was very timely in making down payment of $25 to my account for Arsenal's win. So thank you, Max. You kept your promise. I did bet on Arsenal. I don't know. I was feeling like it. <laughs> Good. I, I look forward to an equally speedy payment when we finish above them in the league. I am feeling fucking confident again. You but, should be speedy. We'll see. <laughs> but so Villa versus Spurs, Sunday, half past eight. Spurs had won their last three until they beat Arsenal. Villa have only won one of their last five, though, losing two and drawing two as well. So last time Spurs won 3-2 through a last-minute goal from Son and Alderweireld scored in both ends. I don't know if you remember that. He scored an own goal and then a goal to kind of scratch that one off. This this actually, to be fair, could be an interesting game, but I feel like Villa are kind of falling out of form and starting to slowly have little to play for. Tottenham are going to be marching for Europe, of course, and we'll see again how they've done tonight. They're currently drawing nil-nil. It's half-time there. But yeah, not much action in the Premier League this year. And then this year, this week, and then we head into the international break. So listeners, 
Definitely tune in for next week because we're going to have an international football special. I don't know about you, but I fucking love international football. So I'm really excited to get talking about countries again. I'm going to say it right now. If a single Inter player comes back from these two weeks injured, Mm. I am going to find the player that injured him or the trainer that wasn't careful enough with their precious muscles and bones and... I'm going to do things that cannot be said. The last thing that Inter Milan need right now is an injury. So I hope that Lukaku will be treated like a Swarovski crystal base. Especially <laughs> well, him. And yes, everybody, yeah. everybody, everybody. Don't fucking do stupid shit. Like, don't. Just don't. Already, <laughs> game, already this game postponed. I had to spend a few minutes telling myself that, yeah, it can also be a good thing. Okay, yeah, we've got a game in hand, whatever. We take like a two-week break. But if a single player comes back injured, I'm going to fucking lose it. All right. Well, thankfully, Arteta has turned around and said he's going to actively block any players from going who are going to like COVID-heavy regions or like Arsenal are not taking any chances and we've got nothing to play for. So, yeah, I I would expect him to do the same, I suppose. But that is the Premier League review. Not much football, but hey, you can watch four games in a weekend. That's easy. So you can see all the Premier League action this weekend. You've got no excuse, guys. And now I think it's time for our weekly topic. Rory, what are we going to talk about? Well, in a week, and I swear, we're not only influenced by Zlatan News, and I don't have notifications on my Google Chrome for Zlatan News, but he seems to be in the news all the time this year. Um in the theme of him returning to international duty and making a comeback, we are going to be looking at people who have made, who have returned to their old clubs, but made a success of it, and some people who maybe didn't. And it is time for the weekly topic, but first, I feel like this is a good chance to take a quick breather and have a sum up of the Europa League. So we've just got to the point where some of the games have finished. Arsenal, despite losing 1-0 and being awful, we've managed to get through, and that's all that counts. Um, Olympiacos winning 1-0 on the night, a goal, of course, from Arabi, the guy who put us out last year. Molder have managed to beat Granada 2-1, but Granada still go through 3-2 on aggregate. And Roma beat Shakhtar 2-1 away, 5-1 on aggregate. But the game that everyone is talking about, Tottenham are currently heading into extra time against Dinamo Zagreb, whose manager can't be on the touchline this evening because he is currently locked up in prison for embezzling funds from the club's transfer fees. And they are heading into extra time. It is 2-2, Zagreb are 2-0 up. And Mourinho is getting schooled from D-Wing. What is going on, Tommy? What happened to the special one? I, I don't... Oh, oh, whoa. Don't don't talk like that, Rory. Have some respect. Put some respect on the dude's name. We will see. We will see. Maybe they're going to go through. We shall see. The guy's in prison. He's not even there. <laughs> no, but okay, whatever. It means that he did a good job until he got to prison, I guess. I don't know, man. Or maybe the special one is really shitting the bed. I don't know because I haven't been watching the game. And in six minutes, I'm actually very excited about AC Milan, Manchester United. I just saw that on Instagram. Clarence Sedorf 
tried to spice up the fixture with a video from the infamous AC Milan win against Manchester United under the rain at the San Siro. And the background music that he chose is like the beginning of a horror movie, kind of like ting, 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 ting. This might be one of the few other Europa League games I actually tune in and watch. I very rarely watch other Europa League games, which says a lot about the competition, granted. But this might be one of the few where I say, you know what, I'll sit and watch this. And here, I'm going to say it. Forza Milan. I'm supporting AC Milan tonight. I didn't... Oh, I think you one of those? You one of those? I, you back your, you back your no, own no, national no, no, team? No, 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 no. I do not back teams from my countries generally, but I have to say that AC Milan deserve the win at Old Trafford, and if they can manage to win against United tonight, it would be incredible because they don't have a striker. But weekly topic, here we are. Rory, what are we going to dive into? So this week, we are going to be talking about people who made returns. They say never go back, but sometimes, just sometimes, it's worth going back. So me and Tommy have both chosen a player and a manager from Premier League and Serie A history um, to go back and look at. So, Tommy, are we going to start in England or are we going to start in Italy? Let's start in Italy. Let's start with your player, Give us a few clues. Give us a teaser. Who are we talking about? So we're talking about an Argentinian player that one of the Argentinian players that became idols in Italy. Now, I always regret the fact that <laughs> we Argentina doesn't speak Italian. That would be so dope if there was a South American country where everybody has an Italian last name and it would be great if they also spoke Italian. Also because we've seen especially... At the end of the 90s, early 2000s, there were a lot of Argentinians in the Serie A and the majority of them still lives in Italy or has sometimes uh, some ties to the TV shows around here or is simply enshrined, inscribed in Serie A history. Well, there's an agreement between the two countries that Argentinians get Italian passports, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very easy if you're an Argentinian with like a drop of Italian blood to get an Italian passport. And the man that I'm going to talk about has a very Italian last name, which could mean something like Curly, I guess. Crespo is Crespo name. Hernan Crespo. Now, when I mention this name, Rory, what do you think about? What, what is the image that pops in front of your head? I see that yellow and blue Parma kit with Parmalat on the front, surrounded by Cannavaro, Turam, um, Buffon, um, many, oh, many there's many a others. few more. I feel like I'm forgetting a lot. Aspria, there's plenty, Aspria, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So Parma, definitely one of the most iconic Serie A teams of the mid to late 90s. And they are already a very competitive team because in 1994-1995, they win the UEFA Cup against Juventus. At the time, Zola was playing for Parma. But they got even better when an Argentinian named Hernan Crespo joined from River Plate in the 1996-1997 season. So his first season in Serie A is actually very good. He comes with the fame of a very prolific striker. He's still very young, but he manages to score 
12 goals and Parma are second in Serie A. So these were different times. Parma were not fighting for relegation. (laughs) In 1997-1998, Parma finished sixth and Crespo still has 12 goals. But the standout season that really makes him become an immortal member of Parma's history is the 1998-1999 season, in which he scores 16 league goals. Parma finished fourth, but that season, here, here, they win the UEFA Cup, they win the Coppa Italia, and they also win the Supercoppa. That was a bit of a treble for the Parmigiani, And I was just looking at their march to the UEFA Cup final. Very interesting teams. So, And also the competition was organized in a different way. There was a round of 64. Did you remember this, Rory? (laughs) Honestly, and you think the Europa League is like huge. A round of 64. That's insane. Yeah, the round of 64 is pretty insane. Remember that at the time, only the champion of every league would play the Champions yeah. League. And so the team who finished uh, the, the the teams who finished below, they had a chance uh, or maybe it was the top two teams that uh, that in the league. I think it was top two and then three and four were you were UEFA Cup, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um well, in the UEFA Cup 1998-1999 at the round of 64 Parma have to travel to Turkey to play Fenerbahce. And they actually lose one nil. And remember this, because throughout this march to the final, they always struggle in the first leg. But on the on the return, Parma Fenerbahce three one. Of course, Crespo scores the second goal, and also Enrico Chiesa, Federico's father, is in the score sheet, and he would end the season as the top goal scorer in the competition. Round of 32, Rory, we are going towards places that you have lived in. Vizla Krakow, Parma, 1-1. With a goal by Chiesa, but Parma are able to overturn the score in the second leg, 2-1 at the Tardini. Now, in the round of 16, round of 32, Crespo doesn't score, but he's still part of an incredible team, and I will read you the lineup for the final. But round of 16, they travel to Scotland. Rangers, Parma, once again, they cannot get the away win. And it finishes with a 1-1 draw. But they are able, once again, for the third time, to overturn the score at the Tardini. 3-1, and Chiesa scores again. Quarterfinals, Bordeaux-Parma. Bordeaux are winning 2-0. But at the 85th minute, Hernan Crespo scores a vital goal. A vital away goal, which seems vital, but if you look at the return leg, 6-0 win with braces by Crespo and Chiesa. And I believe that at this moment in the competition, there was a feeling about Parma possibly pushing all the way. Semi-finals, this is the most hipster fixture that I found, Rory. I actually would have to go back and watch the, the extended highlights because it sounds dope. Atletico Madrid de Parma. What about that? Oh, Atletico Madrid de Parma. And they win their first away leg in the competition 3 1 in Madrid with a brace by Chiesa and a third goal by Crespo. And at the Tardini in Parma, they win again 2 1 with a goal by Chiesa. 
Rory, what is happening in Tottenham at Zagreb? Bale has just absolutely pinged one, but it's just gone wide. Just gone wide. Oh, that was close. That was close. They're starting to look a bit frustrated, Spurs. But at this point, we've gotten to the close. final that Parma play in Moscow, the UEFA Cup final in 1999. And Rory, here is the moment that you've been waiting for. Parma's lineup with a 3-4-1-2. In goal, Gigi Buffon. Three-man defense, Cannavaro, Sensini, Turam. Four-man <laughs> midfield. I know, man. Four-man midfield, Vanoli, so Bogossian, Dino Baggio, and Fuser. Right behind the striker, Juan Sebastian Veron, of course. And up front, Enrico Chiesa and Hernan Crespo. Oh. They played the final against Marseille, and both Pires and Blanc were playing in the French side. Parma would end up winning the game 3-1 with goals by Crespo, Vanoli, and Chiesa. Now, this was huge. If it wasn't for the fact that it happened one week later, they had defeated one one uh, sorry, one week after they had defeated Fiorentina in a two-legged final to win the Coppa Italia, and Crespo scored in both. I love a two-legged final. It feels like it's such a Victorian kind of feeling to settle a, I know, right? settle a cup. <laughs> but it's actually not that long ago that they used to do two-legged finals, right? Can you imagine? You get your final ticket. Like, I'm going to the final, right? Oh, fuck. Now I need to buy another one. Like, <laughs> what to, is this? The first half of the final. Yeah, I actually, yeah. actually, the Coppa Italia, one of the first games that I watched at the San Siro was the return leg of the final between Inter and Roma. I believe we had gotten absolutely... Pfft, played around with in Roma. We had lost something like 6-0. But so on the same season, Crespo manages to help Parma win both the Coppa Italia and the UEFA Super Cup. And in August, they win the Italian Super Cup 2-1 against AC Milan. They come back with Crespo and Bogossian against the AC Milan side that wasn't as stacked as other AC Milan sides that we've we've learned to appreciate, but still, Costa Curta, Maldini, Helveg, Shevchenko, oh. Birov, Wea. Birov and Helveg. Those are two names I appreciate hearing. Yeah, yeah. And then after this, I mean, at this point, teams kind of look around and they're like, Parma is a very decent side. And so Juventus come in for Buffon and Turam and all these teams sort of falls apart. Crespo goes to Lazio, then he goes to Inter Milan, then he goes to Chelsea, then AC Milan, Inter Milan again. He kind of wins everything. And then in 2009, he goes to Genoa, but he does make a comeback. And he decides to finish his career at Parma, where he plays from 2010 to 2012, two and a half seasons. He scores 14 goals still in 50 games. But at this point, the problem with Parma is not trying to win cups anymore. He's staying up from relegation. He manages to help them secure that both times because they finished 12th in 2011 and 8th in 2012. And then he starts coaching their youth team after he retires. But then, as you all know, uh, Parma go bankrupt and the team is relegated first to Serie B and then to the very lowest side of Italian football. And Crespo says, you know what? Eh, I'll go to Modena, same region, and I'll try to be a manager there. 
And right now, I didn't actually know, but he's the manager of Sao Paulo in Brazil. He is, and he recently won the South American version of the Europa League, so the Copa Sudamericana. He recently won it with one of the best team names in Argentina, Defensa y Justicia. Um, he won the Copa Sudamericana with them, and then after that, yeah, he got offered the Sao Paulo job. So good to see Hernan in coaching. I think, oh God, if we could get him in Europe coaching a big European side, I am all for that. Love Hernan Crespo. But yeah, Hernan Crespo has not only become a symbol of Serie A, but in Parma, I believe that people consider him a man of the city. You know, he's like an honorary citizen. He lives there. He's done great things for the club. And man, that lineup that I read earlier. Woo! You know that feel. Can you imagine having that, that we- like watching that generation must have been incredible for Parma fans. They must still talk about it every weekend. Like yeah, every yeah, yeah. weekend in bars, they must talk about that team. You know that Figo, apparently, when he was going to leave Barcelona, I believe, he actually had a pre-deal with Parma in 2000. He had a pre-deal with them, but then he didn't respect it, and he decided to go to Real Madrid instead. What could have been? But Rory, (laughs) take us to England. Well, you were talking about someone who has become the symbol of a city. Well, we are doing exactly the same thing in England. And this is a player that on Twitter, they love her. The streets will never forget player, right? The streets will never forget Adult Rapt. The streets will never forget Andre Arshavin. The streets will never forget whoever, right? Here we have a player who came to symbolize a town. Now, the biggest town in the UK, granted, He was a Brazilian, one of the first Brazilians to play in the Premier League. At a tiny five foot four, people thought he would not be able to hack hack it in the Premier League. But we are talking about Janinho Paulista, the man who always played with a smile on his face. And one of the first players who I remember watching in the Premier League and really, really enjoying. He was just so exotic as a Brazilian. And now we have to realize that he signed for Middlesbrough. Okay, now Middlesbrough have never really been a big club in the UK. He signed for them in 94-95, so the beginning of the 95-96 season he signed. They had they had spent one year in the Premier League before that, but before this they'd been in Division 3, Division 2, Division 1. They were very much not a top-flight side, but they get promoted to the Premier League and they are owned by a local businessman. And he decides to put all this money into the club and turn his local team into what he wants them to be. And what he does is he goes out and he signs this little Brazilian and the the town instantly, instantly fall in love with him. When he signed, when they announced his signing, the stadium is full for people to see him, right? Everyone has Brazil shirts. I was lucky enough like one of my friends is a is a borough fan so i asked him to give us some memories and they will be coming up soon but when i asked him he simply said rory the afternoon is lost because i now have to sit and watch uh, janino videos the entire night but the reason why i'm stumbling over this sentence is because dinamo zagreb are now three nil up oh my 
God. is on to a hat-trick, ladies and gentlemen. And I guess there is a jail party going on in Zagreb. <laughs> Can you imagine the amount of spice being passed around in that, in that prison cell? <laughs> oh, my God. They're going to be having a mad one. No guards are getting sleep on D-Wing tonight. But if we can go back to Middlesbrough quickly, I need to get back into my notes now. Bloody Spursy, 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 Spursy. It's in the blood. Anyway, Janino, he joins Borre in 1995, and it's fair to say the town fall in love with him straight away. In his first season in the Premier League, he gets off to a bit of a slow start, scoring two goals, but he instantly becomes the focal point of the team. He plays an attack in midfield, and people fall in love with his, his jinky runs, his little one-twos, his the fact that he plays with a smile on his face the entire time. His two goals, of course one of them comes against Arsenal, right? It has to. It has to come against Arsenal. But in the second season at Middlesbrough, he starts to hit his stride, and he scores 14 goals that season and gets two assists. Now, this season for Middlesbrough fans is remembered in quite a negative way. They actually reached the both the FA Cup and League Cup final, but lost both, right? This was also the season where they had Ravinelli, and they were relegated because of a points deduction. Now, they got a points deduction because a, lot of, a load of their players got food poisoning, and they couldn't, they had to forfeit a game, right? So the, the FA... Gave them, a, gave them a points deduction, and this ended up, they ended up going down by a point, right? On the last game of the season, they need ben to beat Leeds 1-1. Yeah, they need to beat Leeds, and they end up drawing 1-1, right? Janino scores the goal, thinking that he's going to give them, he's going to save this team, but ultimately they are relegated. And Colin, when I asked my friend one of your fondest moments of... Um, Janino, he said when he was crying on the pitch at Leeds when we drew 1-1 and went down at the end of the season, you can't help but love him for that. Despite only being at the team for two years, you could see how much it meant to him. But Middlesbrough had gone down and they needed to sell him. So he goes to Atletico Madrid. They sell him for around $13 And it doesn't really work out for him at Atletico. He spends two years there. It's when Atletico were a bit... They're in the Secunda division. He does get promoted with them, but ultimately it doesn't really work out, and he ends up going on loan to both Flamenco and I believe it's Gremio uh, on loan for two seasons. But then finally he has his chance to go back to the team he loves, and he rejoins Middlesbrough. They are back in the Premier League, and now it is the 03-04 season. But when he comes back, most importantly, he has become a World Cup winner. He has won the he's won the World Cup with Brazil in 2002, playing five of the games that tournament, including the final. Now, I didn't realize he was such a key player for Brazil in that tournament, but it shows that not only the quality of the player, but how unrecognized his talent goes. I think people don't realize just how good this guy was. So anyway, he returns to Middlesbrough as a World Cup winner, and he is the Messiah yet again, and this time it goes much, much better. So in the 03-04 season, he returns and he wins the League Cup with Middlesbrough, beating Bolton 2-1 in the final, and Janino got the crucial goal in the semi-final, and who did they knock out in the semi-final, Tommy? 
Tottenham? <laughs> Arsenal, of course they did. Oh, no, he no. got the crucial goal at Highbury to knock Arsenal out in the two-legged semi-final. But he got them to the final and they beat Sam Allardyce's Bolton 2-1. This becoming Middlesbrough's first ever major trophy. Now, I knew when I messaged my friend Colin about Juninho that it was going to be 20, 30 messages about how much this guy means to him, right? But I'm just going to read a few of the messages to sum up how much the city, the town, love him, right? So when he came back, definitely winning the the Carling Cup in 2004 because because he was there when we had two cup final losses in his first stint, seeing him win the trophy finally, you could see how much it meant to him. But he said despite him playing so long at the club and him not him being such a legend, he never got a testimonial, right? But the manager, they had a friendly against PSV before one of the seasons and they kind of made it his testimonial nominally, right? Now, my friend was at this game. He says, one of my favorite memories was when he came back the last time. He never got a proper testimonial, but the manager played him in a preseason game against PSV. The stadium had been quiet for years since we went down and you'd kind of forgotten about how great it used to be. Then he came on with half an hour to go and every time he got the ball, the whole place was just electric with anticipation. And you felt like the other players in the team finally got to see what it would be like to be a genuine club legend. He says the 2004 Carling Cup final medal means more to him or as much to him as winning the World Cup with Brazil. This is a guy who has ended up in this random town in the northeast of England where, I'm sorry people from Middlesbrough, not much happens and he has just become an icon of this town and this team and I love it. I'm all for it and if you I would urge you, if you have not watched Janino Paulista videos go and look for his montage. He is a fantastic player. Now, I did not have any memory about this player until Rory told me to check him out and I looked at his pictures on Google Images and I still didn't click. But then when I when I saw him in the Brazil team, at that point I was like, oh, I do remember him now. I absolutely ignored the fact that he played for Middlesbrough. But man, the story of those three cup, two cup finals lost and then finally a win and the messages from your friend. Wow, what a career. I mean, it kind of like teaches us, I guess, that there are wins and wins in football, okay? But mm-hmm. to him, so I, I think you have to put everything into perspective. Winning a World Cup with your country, that's huge, of course. But maybe it's even bigger to win the Cup with Middlesbrough in a way, isn't it? So, I don't know, a beautiful, beautiful story. Very interesting, Rory. Well, I think now, now like, because that was like the peak of Middlesbrough, really. After that, they had a season in the Europa League where they got to the final and lost to... Severe, of course, because it's the Europa League. But this was like the peak team of Middlesbrough, and this was their kind of the height of their achievements. And I think he is just the symbol of that. And we have to also mention, just because it's the Anglo-Italian connection, with Ravinelli, him and Ravinelli combined for like 46 goals throughout the time they played together. Like they really, really played well. Great understanding. And that Middlesbrough team is like a classic, kind of almost like the Palmer team. If you want to think of a stereotypical 90s Premier League team with great players, you kind of think of that Middlesbrough team. They also had Emerson. They had a lot of really cool players on that team. It was a very nice side. I hope Middlesbrough fans have enjoyed it because, yeah, I really enjoyed watching those videos again. 
And moving to managers, I hope that this one will bring good luck to AC Milan. Apparently, I don't have the game in front of me. I'm just following like the live uh, commentary, and it's looking like quite a game, apparently. Manchester United really pushing. AC Milan starting to come off the defense just now. But talking about managers who had brilliant comebacks, we have here Nereo Rocco now. If you've listened to the podcast before, you should know that Nereo Rocco is the guy who answered during a press conference, a pre-match interview. They asked him, so may the best team win? And he said, I strongly hope not. He's also the same guy who said, kick everything you see in the pitch. If it's the ball, all the better. Now, look at this guy. This guy was kind of a... We're talking about the 1960s in Italy and the 1970s and 60s. And he was this big, chubby man. And I think that it's brilliant, the picture that he has with the trophies that AC Milan has collected in one season. He's like this fat man with these two cups over his shoulders. And you kind of wonder, has he eaten any of the other cups that they've won? Because he was a big dude. But so Nereo Rocco... He was from uh, from northern Italy, the region of Veneto. And then uh, he coached the AC Milan from 1961 to 19, 1963. Now, in his first season at AC Milan, he wins the league in 1961-1962. And in 1962-1963, huge accomplishment. accomplishment. He wins the first Champions League for AC Milan. The first title, they win it against Benfica in the final with goals by Altafini, Abrace, and Eusebio. And in the AC Milan team, we had, of course, Maldini, the father, however. Trapattoni, big trap. I made oh, a post it was his birthday this week. It was his birthday yeah. this week, eh? It, it was his birthday on St. Patrick's Day. And he was also coaching Ireland. And I forgot to say during the Euro review that an Irish MP, he went to the Irish Parliament wearing a Torino jersey after they had beaten <laughs> a swallow the other day because he said <laughs> Ireland, Ireland, he said like the Irish people love a fight and the team that I support put up a big one today and the fact that it happened on Saint Patrick's Day makes it all the better. So going back. Going back to the 1962-1963 Champions League final, AC Milan won two win, and in their team they had Cesare Maldini, Trapattoni, Altafini, and Rivera. Now, after this huge win, you have to think that the times were different, and there was a team that was looking for, was really looking for, for a comeback after yet another air disaster, maybe the first big air disaster, the one that ended the Grande Torino. So Nereo Rocco went to, to Turin to coach the Granata, and he obtained actually the best results ever since the Superga air disaster that happened in 1949. But then after Turin, he decides to go back to AC Milan, and he will spend six seasons there from 1967 to 1973. He wins the Serie A, of course, in 1967-1968. And he manages to win three Coppa Italias in 72, 73, and 77. But I would have to double-check this stat. 
But I think he might be the only manager in European football history that won a Champions League with the club, came back and won another one. He won AC Milan's second Champions League in 1969 against Ajax. The AC Milan team came out 4-1 winners. And in the Ajax team, there was a certain Cruyff playing. So, yet another huge accomplishment for the big man from northern Italy, Nereo Rocco. And he also won two UEFA Cup Winners' Cups. Now, the UEFA Cup Winners' Cups, all the winners of the National Cup, they would meet during the summer for this international tournament. So the teams that had won the Coppa Italia, the team that had won the FA Cup, the Coupe de France, and so on. And they won the first one in 1968 against Hamburg. And in 1973 against a team that we've been talking about a lot this season, Leeds. And who was playing for Leeds? Joe Jordan. Remember him? (laughs) One of the hardest men around, man. He is terrifying. He is terrifying. Do you remember him taking on Gattuso as a coach? Exactly. He's very, very (laughs) tough. Except when he bumps into Gattuso, just like grabs his throat. I think he was assisted. I don't know, man. I'm taking Joe Jordan in that fight all day. Honestly, I don't care if Joe Jordan's 60. I'm taking him all day in that fight. Wow. Interesting take. And Rory, what manager are you going to talk about as Dinamo Zagreb are still up 3 0 against Tottenham? I think that we might have 90 seconds. 90. There's 90 seconds for them to hold on. We are going to talk about now a manager who I actually am not that big a fan of. And people in English football love him. I'm not that bothered about him. But the story, this story sums him up perfectly. And we are going to talk about Harry Redknapp. Now, a man who is most often associated with West Ham. He was West Ham manager, he was Bournemouth manager, but we're going to talk about his time on the South Coast at Portsmouth. Now, he takes over in he takes over in the 0203 season. Now, Portsmouth are in the Championship or the First Division at the time. They've never been in the Premier League. They're a team that have just survived relegation. And he takes a, he takes over, does the Harry Redknapp magic, brings in the the kind of journeyman players, and he gets them promoted to the Premier League on ninety eight points. They um, they only lose six games all season, and they score ninety seven goals. Right now, I'm going to take you through some of the players they had in this team. They had Eddie Howe of Bournemouth fame. Arjan Dezeu, who now, interestingly, is a murder detective um, after retiring from football. They had Svetislav Todorov, who became a second division legend. He scored 26 goals that season. They had Paul Merson, the Arsenal legend. Yakubu, who would go on to play for Everton. And Gianluca Festa. Do you remember that guy? No, I do not remember this guy. He was one of the famous Italians in the UK, Festa, and Linvoy Primus. Now, this is a great squad that he assembles, and he gets them promoted to the Premier League straight away. And 
this was like a team that Fratton Park only had, I think it held 20,000. But Portsmouth is a really interesting team. They're the only island team on in the UK, right? The only island city, because it's technically an island, and a very, very passionate support. In their short time in the Premier League, it was it kind of quickly became known as one of the stadiums with the best atmosphere. And it's still, they're now in League One, and the atmosphere there is still fantastic. So, a great, the game is over, guys. Tottenham, oh, I, oh I, it's not yet. I've still got five seconds. Are we going to count me down? Four, three, two, one. As the ref blown his whistle, yes, we've got to wait. Yes, yes. The Zagreb coaches are waving their arms. The You're a few seconds late on the stream, buddy. I'm like, Spurs are knocked out of the Europa League. God damn it, guys. Why? What just happened? Oh, Rory God. is literally bent over. Oh, right so Spursy. So, so Spursy. You've just lost to a man who doesn't have, who can't go to the toilet when he wants to. You just. <laughs> Wow, that was oh. quite something. All right, right. That's, I think this right. was this was good to have anyway. the game on at the same time. Oh. Harry what? Redknapp, anyway, he has got Portsmouth into the Premier League. And in the first season, he does his magic, brings in all the transfers. And they manage to stay up. So he keeps Pompey in the Prem. But unfortunately, he has a few arguments with the owner, Milan Mandaric. Um after he kind of brought in staff that he wasn't aware of. So he leaves in November. And a couple of days later, he joins Portsmouth's bitter, bitter rivals, Southampton. So he he gives them a couple of days, right, for them to get over it. Now, Portsmouth-Southampton is a derby that people, again, in England, don't realize how fierce that derby is. For a while, it was one of the most dangerous. It was one of the most violent. So he has now switched and gone to Southampton. His job at Southampton is to keep them in the Premier League. Unfortunately, he, he is unable to do it, and they are relegated. He takes Southampton down to the championship. He starts the next season with them. But after winning only four of the first 19 games in charge and them in 12th position, he decides to leave Southampton this again after they have appointed the Rugby World Cup winning coach to help him coach the team. He was both Portsmouth and Southampton this time are crazy, ridiculous clubs. But anyway, he quits. A few days later, he goes back to Portsmouth and he saves them from relegation. So they're looking like they're going to get relegated. He has a great end. Then this is the 06, 07 season. No, the 05, 06 season. He keeps them up and they win six and draw two of their last 10 games of the season to stay in the Premier League. So his, his impact straight away comes in and he keeps them into the league. But it is the next season where he really if the Portsmouth fans hated him for joining Southampton, this is where they maybe start to forgive him, right? So the 07-08 season, they go on a bit of an FA Cup run. So this squad, I'm going to read the names of this squad they had in 07-08, and this is classic Harry Redknapp, right? He is great in the transfer market, wheeler-dealer, getting a bargain, right? This squad he had, Laurent, 
Glenn Johnson, David James, Lasana Diara, Papa Booba Diop, Milan Barosh, David Nugent, Sully Montari, Jermaine Defoe, Sylvan Distan, Nico Cranshaw, Kanu, Azmir Begovic, and Pedro Mendes. There are so wow. many of those players that have gone on to do great things in the Premier League. Like, that is a hell of a squad. Anyway, in the FA Cup, they go on a run. They win six of the seven games in the tournament 1-0, right? The other one, they win 2-1. One of those 1-0s is at Old Trafford against Manchester United. Now, you'll remember, in the 07-08 season, Manchester United won both the Premier League and the Champions League. So it is this team that stopped them from doing the treble, right? Now, the game, the semi-final at, uh, no, the quarter-final at Old Trafford, they win 1-0, and it all goes a bit mad. So Van der Sar, in goal, has to go off injured. Kushak, the substitute keeper, is then sent off for taking the striker down. I think it was Jermaine Defoe for taking Defoe down in the box. So Rio Ferdinand has to go into goal to try and save the penalty. Obviously, Montari scores, and they go 1-0 up. Now, the whole of this game is one-way traffic. United absolutely batter them. But Portsmouth go through 1-0 and they face Cardiff in the final. Now, Cardiff were at this point, they were in the championship. So Portsmouth, despite being massively unfancied to get to the final, they are the favourites and they win the final 1-0, a goal from Carnu. So Harry Redknapp, despite... Fans wearing T-shirts, telling him to rot in hell, calling him a scummer. On his return, manages to give them their first major trophy in around 60, 70 years and redeem himself completely. I think this is one of the greatest returns to a club in English football history, really. And that Portsmouth FA Cup run was fantastic to watch. What a team. What a team. It's got to be, man. What a story. Harry Radknapp. Radknapp. It's one of those managers that uh, if you're not British or if you don't know anybody who follows British football, you kind of have a hard time understanding why he has the reputation that he does. But now that I heard this story, it makes all the more sense. Big time. Well, and in, in typical Harry Redknapp fashion, days after winning the FA Cup final, he saw a bigger job and left for Tottenham. So the loyalty has never been his strong suit. But... What a guy, what a team. Tommy, do you have any honorable mentions for the players? There are, I mean, there are many players that kind of came back, but I can't recall of anybody in Serie A that came back and made a huge, huge impact. I remember Shevchenko came back to AC Milan, but he didn't do quite as well. And I remember a few other names like that. Kakao also came back to AC Milan, but he didn't do that well. And uh, I don't know, there are there are quite a few, but I I felt like the bond that Crespo had with the city of Parma and the fact that he went back even when they were fighting for relegation and he was like, I'm going to stick here. And then he even got a coaching job there. I felt like it was the most fitting story that I could uh, I could bring to the discussion. What about you? Honorable mentions besides... Nice, I've got a few Thierry honorable Henry. mentions. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about the Thierry Henry goal because I've talked about it four or five times already. But I'm going to say Drogba. He left Chelsea in 2012 to move to China and Turkey. But then he came back in 2014 to win the league and League Cup again at Chelsea. That's a fairly successful return. And also Robbie Fowler. He left Liverpool in 01 for Leeds and then City. 
where he returned to Liverpool for one season in 06-07, and he managed to overtake Dalglish in the scoring record, notching up or getting to 183 goals compared to Kenny Dalglish's 172. Honourable mentions for manager? Honourable mentions for manager, Capello did come back at Ace Milan. I'm trying to think of others off the top of my head in Serie A. Well, Prandelli at Fiorentina currently... He's a comebacker. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I hope maybe one day to see Conte go back to coaching the Italian national team. I think I would want to see Conte Ooh. coaching the Italian national team at a World Cup. That would be big. I like that shout. The honorable mentions for Premier League managers. Some of these went well, some of them not so well. Mourinho, of course, leaving Chelsea in 0607 for Inter and Real. He returned in 13-14 to win the league before it all went terribly wrong the one that was an absolute shit show was of course it was i love you but kevin keegan has the worst luck in football maybe in life he left newcastle in 97 after giving up a 12 point lead at the top of the table to manchester united he then returned in 2008 saved newcastle from relegation but fell out massively with Mike Ashley over signings, over financial backing. This was the peak of messy Newcastle United. But despite this, Newcastle fans still love a bit of keggy. And we also have a current returner to mention, which is, of course, the Moisire, David Moyes. He was sacked by West Ham in 17-18 to be replaced by Pellegrini. But then he replaced Pellegrini a year later, and now we all know the great season he is having at West Ham. Another honorable mention for things going to shit, Arrigo Sacchi. He did incredibly at AC Milan, then coached <laughs> the Italian national team, went back to AC Milan, and literally he said this, he said the experience went so badly that I decided to stop coaching. Nice. So yeah, that, that was the end of his coaching career. But I think that we're all done with our weekly topic. Rory, you still, I still have to find the answer to the Who Am I quiz. Shall we move on? Let's move on. And here we are at the answer section of the Who Am I quiz. I enjoyed that topic too people I didn't really expect to be talking about at the beginning of this week, but I enjoyed talking about them. Tommy, what did you think? You know, do you still think it's a good idea to return? I don't know. I mean, well, the the, the Ibrahimovic case is a little different than the ones we've talked about because it's an international team. Um, I think that it just makes sense that Ibrahimovic is back. I think it was kind of a quick statement the one he made about wanting to quit Sweden like Mm. you should know yourself dude like are you sure you want to quit and uh, but I don't know like the stories that we've seen sometimes the comebacks are sweet sometimes they're not but at this specific moment in time I'm still wrapping my head around the who am I quiz so the hints that Rory gave me were that the club that he played for the shortest is Krasnodar. Now, I said that it's a Polish team, but I'm very confused, and I might be offending quite a few people from Eastern Europe, because in my head, sometimes I'm quite good at geography, but Eastern Europe is a bit of a jumble. So I'm going to keep saying Poland, but I'm not as confident as I was before. Then 75 international caps and 11 goals. Now... 
this stat makes me think that it's not a national team that competes in that many competitions or at least doesn't go that far in those competitions. 120 goals makes me think of a solid, solid midfielder. Mm. And then finally, Akinfev, Witzel, and Giroud. So I gave, I gave it a thought, and now I'm very confused. I think I'm confusing a Ukrainian goalkeeper who plays for Shakhtar, and I do not remember his name, but he's hmm. been around quite some time. And Akinfev is, of course, the national goalkeeper for Russia. And if I'm not mistaken, if mistaken he plays for Moscow, CSKA Moscow. Now, Witzel is the other player that he played with, and I was confused earlier. Right now, he's at Borussia Dortmund. He had a long spell in China. But where was he before? And it came to my mind. He was at Zenit St. Petersburg. So I'm seeing a strong Russian connection there. And finally, Giroud. Giroud is kind of the odd one out because, as far as I'm concerned, he's never played in Eastern Europe. But he played at Chelsea, Arsenal, Marseille, I want to say, but I could be really shitting the bad. Maybe it was another team. But okay, Rory, I've got a few questions ready for you. Shoot away. Fire away. Shoot away. Fire away. First question. Am I a midfielder? Yes. Okay. Second question. Am I from a country east of Germany? Yes. Yes. And you said it in a very convincing way. And finally, have you ever played in the Premier League? Yes. Yes. Okay. Ah, nice. So, Eastern European, played in the Premier League, and uh, he's a midfielder. He's an Eastern European midfielder. I'm just going to shoot the first name. Uh, I'm thinking... Thomas Rosicki? No, that's not east of Germany. But Poland is not east. You see, I told he's, you. It's, he's it's, from Czech Republic. He's from the Czech Republic. He's yeah. not Polish. Why do we think no, that no. every player is Polish? God, this is embarrassing for any Eastern European listener. Um, midfielder from Eastern Europe who played in the Premier League. Uh, <laughs> are you and please name come to my mind are you Eastern European a Russian midfielder who played in the Premier League I'm confused a Ukrainian midfielder who played for a Polish midfielder wow I'm confused um... I'll give you his nationality right alright if you want Go for it. <laughs> he's Russian. He's Russian and he's played as a midfielder. I would say, right, he's an attacking midfielder. Is it Arshavin? It is Andre Arshavin. That was going to be my first guess, but then he said midfielder and I was just like... Well, I wanted to say it is technically a midfielder, right? A winger is technically a midfielder. But is he retired? Isn't he playing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arshavin? No, he's retired now. Ah, he's, he's retired, retired after the season yeah. with Kairat. He did. Right. Two seasons in Kazakhstan, yes. 
So have Andre Arshavi, one of my favorites. Fucking love Andre. Half a win for me because um, you did give me a big hint right there. But um, um, so why did you pick Arshavin? Because he's one of my favorite Arsenal players. I just loved him. I thought he was so good. He was like the stereotypical Russian player of like, he was really talented, but he was a bit overweight and his work ethic wasn't that great. And he was really mercurial, but he had some big moments for us. He scored the winner at the Emirates against Barcelona. He was like, I loved him for the short time he was at Arsenal. I really, really loved him. What a guy. And then seeing him in Kazakhstan just made it even better. Like, what a guy. You know how sometimes Twitter and Instagram football pages, they will post the mm-hmm. picture of a shirt from front from back in the day, and they will ask you, who is the first player that comes mm-hmm. to your mind? Now, there is a particular Arsenal kit, the yellow one, that, okay. I, they, that I always think of Arshavin, because if I'm not mistaken, he scored three goals against United. Or four goals? Four goals at Anfield against Liverpool. Oh, against Liverpool. <laughs> it was unbelievable. You see, it was unbelievable. I, yeah. I, I, I hope my memory is not failing me, but he should have. I think he was wearing that yellow kit. And, he was. Uh, and we still managed to draw that game 4 <laughs> 4. He must have looked at the rest <laughs> of his team going, oh my God, what else have I got to do, guys? Yeah, <laughs> what yeah. What the fuck yeah. were you guys doing? But all right, that was a good one, Rory. Thank you very much. And I guess, listeners, I thank you for being with us until now. And now I will leave you to Rory with the final quote of our episode. Remember that on Monday night, we'll be live on Twitch and YouTube to discuss everything that happened in the weekend, but especially international football. Yeah, so here we are. It's time for the quote of the week. And I was reminded of this as it popped up on Twitter this week. And we are going back to another Arsenal legend, Emmanuel Abue, as he was figuring out both English and how to use Twitter, here are three tweets in a row from the big man himself. Is a wank a biscuit or ice cream? Everyone is suggesting I have a wank. What is the meaning of wank? You know my first language is French. My wife and kids are not around. What do you people think I should do? Thanks a lot, guys. We'll see you next week.